Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to Episode 9 of our series. In this installment, we're going to cover a couple of episodes that put some ambiguity around Abraham's character, especially in light of how we generally think about him. As with flesh-and-blood people, Abraham's character has different facets, from less than flattering to downright inexplicable. The first of these episodes is less likely to be well known. It is the incident in which Abraham seeks hospitality from a nearby king, Abimelech, and attempts to pass off his wife Sarah as his sister, which she was. The second episode is the sacrifice of Isaac, which needs little introduction, but makes for a lot of explanation and discussion. First, a word on pronunciation. The name of the king in the story in the first part is usually pronounced Abimelech by most English speakers, but the Hebrew renders it Abimelech. I tend to use the latter for some odd reason. I'll try to use the former for the sake of clarity, but if I slip and pronounce it the other way, that's why I do. Besides, the second pronunciation is a great one to use if you want to sound scholarly and pretentious. The story of Abraham's attempted deception of Abimelech regarding the nature of Sarah is one of three such stories in Genesis. The other two are when Abraham tries the same trick on Pharaoh, and later Isaac does so with Abimelech. We've seen in the past how the editors of Genesis had no problem putting different versions of the same story side by side, so it's fair to assume the same thing is going on here. But we must also assume that they did so for some reason. If nothing else, it's pretty clear that they considered this story to be very important and worth saving in each of its variants. Our text is Genesis chapter 20 which runs as follows. Abraham journeyed toward the region of the Negeb and settled between Kadesh and Shur. While residing in Gerar as an alien, Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. And King Abimelech of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, You are about to die because of the woman whom you have taken for she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent people? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. I did this in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. Furthermore, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all that are yours. What's happening here? For some clarity, we can look at the other wife-sister stories to get some perspective. In the case of Abraham and Pharaoh, Abraham wished to hide his marital relationship with Sarah because, apparently, Sarah was very easy on the eyes, as the saying goes, and Abraham feared that the Pharaoh would kill him in order to have her. As her brother, 
he would merely make Abraham an offer, presumably one that he couldn't refuse. We can assume a similar rationale exists here, although the text does not mention Sarah's beauty. But there is another assumption on Abraham's part, which he does explain when he was later confronted about his deception by Abimelech. Abraham assumes that this new place where he has moved his camp is corrupt, that they do not respect God. In this case, once again, the test is one of compliance with hospitality rules. Butchering the husband in order to carry off the wife is, we can all agree, somewhat inhospitable, but it turns out that Abraham's fears were groundless. It is true that apparently, as king, Abimelech could have any unmarried woman he wanted. Rank hath its privileges, but adultery was beyond the pale even for a king. Worse, this was adultery with a guest. The first tip-off that something was amiss was that the women in Abimelech's household stopped having children. So the text implies that Sarah was there for a while before God let Abimelech know she was married. But Abraham is not all that innocent either. Sarah does enter the household of Abimelech, but because she is Abraham's spouse, she is subject to the same courtesies that prohibit the host from taking undue liberties with the guest, whether the host knows she's married or not, apparently. We have already seen how important hospitality is in Genesis, to the point that it becomes the litmus test for blessing or annihilation. Abraham's precautions to save his own skin not only put Sarah in an awkward position, it endangers the life of the local king and his household. This seems odd, coming from someone who literally argued with God to raise the threshold for destroying Sodom and Gomorrah in a vain effort to keep it from happening. The story ends with Sarah going back to Abraham along with a large quantity of goods and treasure from Abimelech, including 1,000 pieces of silver, plus slaves and livestock. Most readers and many commenters assume that this payoff is an apology, or even as a gesture of awe towards Abraham's God. But that does not mesh with what we read in the text and ignores certain cultural factors. Abimelech is not guilty of anything. He argues for his innocence before God and wins the point. So why is he the one paying Abraham? The silver is explicitly made as an exoneration payment to the one person who might bring a claim against Abimelech, Abraham, whom Abimelech rather sarcastically refers to as your brother. It is a gift, but made to secure a favor in return, as we saw in a previous podcast. A gift re requires reciprocation. By accepting this gift, Abraham reciprocates by foregoing any claim he may have against Abimelech on account of Sarah. The second gift, which Abraham also ex accepts, puts him further under obligation to Abimelech, and this also includes a gift of places to encamp, wherever in Gerar he wishes to set up. In the following chapter, after a brief interlude in which Sarah gives birth to Isaac and drives Hagar and Ishmael from the household, Abimelech takes one more precaution on account of Abraham. The text reads, At that time Abimelech, with Phicol, his commander of the army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now therefore swear to me here, by God, that you will not deal falsely with me, or with my offspring, or with my posterity. But as I have dealt loyally with you, 
you will deal with me and with the land where you have resided as an alien. And Abraham said, I swear it. Basically, Abimelech is putting Abraham under covenant to behave himself and not pull any more nonsense that nearly cost Abimelech everything. Abraham readily agrees. He really doesn't have any choice in the matter at this point. He is obligated to Abimelech, and he most certainly does not occupy the moral high ground. This is a troubling story for many reasons. The patriarch Abraham falls lower in the test than a Canaanite king, who is completely exonerated. Abraham's assumption that the fear of God is not in this place, as he puts it, turns out to be incorrect. Not only does Abimelech observe the rules of society as best he can, he is of such character that God communicates with him. Abraham still does the right thing in the end. He intercedes on behalf of Abimelech so that God reverses the damage done to his household, which brings us to an important point. Abraham can still be an intercessor on behalf of others in spite of his own shortcomings. He can invoke God's power for others without his being exalted in the process. The sacrifice of Isaac is known in Jewish tradition as the Akedah, or the binding, as in the binding of Isaac, and is one of the most discussed parts of the Torah, if not the entire Old Testament. I have personally witnessed world-class biblical scholars throw up their hands in a gesture of despair in their efforts to find clarity in this story. It's one of those stories that becomes more complicated and difficult the closer you look, and perhaps that in itself is not a bad thing. It's good to be faced by a truly thorny problem now and then to keep yourself from getting cocky. The story basically is this. God instructs Abraham that he is to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah, a three-day journey. Without a word of protest, Abraham and Isaac start off early the next morning. Abraham does not tell Isaac what is in store for him. Isaac asks why there is no sacrificial lamb for the sacrifice, and Abraham assures him that God will provide one. Abraham builds an altar, lays the wood on it, binds his own son, and lays him on the altar. The sacrificial knife is literally poised to kill his own son when God intervenes directly, telling Abraham not to do the deed, and that because he refused to withhold his son from God, God will honor the covenant to make Abraham's progeny innumerable. Abraham sees a ram caught in a thicket which becomes the sacrifice in place of Isaac. How do you even begin to enumerate the difficulties here? Abraham, who intercedes for the worst sinners in Sodom, doesn't let out a peep when asked to sacrifice his son in a way that would rival the worst excesses of his idolatrous neighbors. The same God who asks this of him is the same God who, in chapter 15, took upon himself a solemn oath that Abraham's progeny would be, literally, astronomically numerous. If God had already decided that Abraham was worthy of a covenant, why test him? 
and do we really understand the nature of that test? The language of the story is tight, terse, and bursting with tension. Little details drive this tension, such as the early start with no procrastination or hesitation, and the unwillingness of Abraham to reveal to anyone what he was called upon to do. When they reach their destination, Abraham tells the servants to wait until we come back. The word used for test, nasa in Hebrew, is key to helping to dig into this passage. It only appears once in Genesis, but in later texts it appears with God as the subject, in situations where the object of the test is nearly always Israel. An important exception, apart from Abraham, is Job, where this word appears in the prologue. Usually, the test is some kind of action of God in history or Israel's experience in history. The point of the tests are concerned with obedience. The word gets applied retrospectively by way of subsequently interpreting the event rather than describing the event itself. It's possible, perhaps even probable, that the same retrospective use of the word is in effect in our passage. The verdict of Judaism and Christianity is more or less universally positive, that Abraham did the right thing by offering his son. Islam makes the change Islam makes the change that Abraham Islam makes the change that the son in question was Ishmael rather than Isaac, and goes even further. Abraham, or Ibrahim as the Quran names him, tells Ishmael what is about to happen, and Ishmael is delighted by the idea. He counts it a privilege to become a martyr to the faith in this way. This is balanced by the critiques of humanist scholars who insist that God cannot flout moral law. The classic rebuke comes from Immanuel Kant in his appendix to Kierkegaard's Fucht und Zittern, Fear and Trembling. He writes, There are certain cases in which man can be convinced that it cannot be God whose voice he has heard. When the voice commands him to do what is opposed to the moral law, he must count it as a deception. The myth of the sacrifice of Abraham can serve as an example. Abraham, at God's command, was going to slaughter his own son. The poor child, in his ignorance, even carried the wood. Abraham should have said to this supposed divine voice that I am not to kill my beloved son is quite certain, that you who appear to me are God, I am not certain, nor can I ever be, even if the voice thunders from the sky. Kant has a point. If God is the moral lodestone and the standard by which the moral order holds together, it makes sense for God to behave accordingly as Abraham himself literally chides God four chapters earlier while pleading for the lives of the people of Sodom, quote, That be far from you to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? However, we have to point out that Kant's theological paradigm is one shaped by expectations that the God of the Old Testament didn't necessarily sign on to. That God is, to put it mildly, unpredictable, and even dangerous.
Jewish tradition remembers this event on the Judgment Day of Rosh Hashanah at the beginning of the Jewish New Year. God is asked to show mercy to his people because of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son. One prayer for the day reads, Remember unto us, O Lord our God, the covenant and the loving kindness and the oath which thou swore unto Abraham our father on Mount Moriah, and consider the binding with which Abraham our father bound his son Isaac on the altar, how he suppressed his compassion in order to perform thy will with a perfect heart. So may thy compassion overbear thine anger against us. In thy great goodness may thy great wrath turn aside from thy people, thy city, and thine inheritance. Pauline Christianity ascribes Abraham's certainty to a faith in the resurrection, but this is not an idea that we find in the patriarchal period. The unalterable fact is that with the loss of his son, Abraham and the covenant has no future. Perhaps biblical scholar Klaus Westermann said it best after comparing the various attempts to make sense of this passage. He opined that the difference in these attempts to explain Genesis 22 are not essential. What is, is that the narrative lives on. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament. Thank you.